Good morning. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and fed you, or thirsty and gave, gave you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked, or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. This passage is where we get the phrase, the least of these. Who belongs to this group? And what does it look like to care for the people in this group? The Supreme Court decision on Friday has highlighted the reality that in our country we are deeply divided on this question. And I'm not going to talk about that at length this morning, although we will talk about that more in the future. Um, but this passage Joel just read does touch on it, so we're going to touch on it as well this morning. And let me just say, I, I know for a fact that I am not going to say everything that needs to be said, and I'm not going to say everything in the way that everybody here might want me to say it, but we will touch on it. But the reason we'll touch on it is because this passage actually takes us into even deeper territory. What do I mean? Jonathan Haidt 
is a moral psychologist at New York University. And one of his main ideas, and he's not alone in the scientific community, is that uh, he says that even though we like to think of ourselves as rational beings, in reality, he says, we don't reason to find truth, but to justify what we already believe. We don't use our reason to find truth, but to justify what we already believe. In other words, when we encounter facts that challenge our picture of reality, our default is we either deny and reject those facts, or we try to cram them into our already existing picture of reality, even if they don't fit. What we typically do not do, he says, is change our picture of reality. Now, what do I mean by picture? If you were with us in the spring, one of the things we talked about a lot was the difference between stories and scripts. Your script tells you how to act, but every script presupposes a story. The story is the background picture that makes sense of how you act. So, for instance, imagine you're in a horror story and you hear a scary noise behind a creepy door in a dark house. Do you run away and find shelter? Of course not. You go over there like a fool and you open the door to see what's behind it because that's how people act in a horror story. You don't say, now this is the way I'm supposed to act because this is the kind of story I'm in. No. The story, you take the story for granted. The story is the background picture that makes sense of how we act. Friends, the reason that facts and evidence and logic and all that stuff so rarely changes our minds is not because people are stupid. It's not because people are moral monsters. It's because we form our conscious beliefs about the world inside of a picture so that when people just throw facts at you, the facts, they bounce off the picture. That means most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time, the way that we really change our minds and change the way we live is by getting a different picture of reality. The parables of Jesus are pictures of God and his world that invite us to walk around in that world and get a different picture of reality. Now, this morning, whatever your picture of reality is, this parable challenges every single one of us, but in different ways. So whether you're a lifelong follower of Jesus or a deconstructing ex-churchgoer or maybe a spiritual but not religious type, then you do believe in a God of love but not so much a God of judgment, or maybe you're skeptical about all things related to Jesus and Christianity. But wherever you're at this morning, there are things in this parable that challenge our picture of reality, but also surprises that invite us into a better, more beautiful version of the picture we already hold. How is that so? Let's step into the picture. Jesus shows us three surprises in this parable. There's a surprising mercy, a surprising judgment, and lastly, a surprising convergence of those two things. A surprising mercy, a surprising judgment, and a surprising convergence of the two, okay? First, there's a surprising mercy. At the very beginning, let's set the story here. At the very beginning, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The Son of Man is a divine figure 
from the prophet Daniel chapter 7 who shares the glory and the throne of God himself and one day will come and bring healing and renewal and final judgment to the whole world. Jesus is saying, that's me. He goes on to say this, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, the sheep and the goats, the main idea here is that on the surface, they look very similar. So only the shepherd is able to see clearly enough to tell the difference between them. In other words, it's just another way of saying that only Jesus has the right to judge. You put all this together, Jesus is saying, I am the divine king of the universe, and one day I am going to administer final judgment on every single human being. And I recognize that might trigger challenges and questions for some of you. I promise you will get to those. But if you're willing to hold on to those and go with Jesus for just a moment here, here's the big question. What is the basis upon which Jesus says you get eternal life and you get eternal punishment? What's the basis of judgment here? It's all based on whether or not you showed mercy to the most poor, to the most oppressed, to the most vulnerable members of society, what Jesus calls the least of these. It's all about whether or not you showed mercy. Now, this mercy is surprising and in at least a couple of ways. First, it's surprising to Protestant Christians because we say, look, we're not saved by good works. We're saved by grace through faith, that it's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus did for us on the cross, which is true. But here it sounds like Jesus is saying, it's all about what you do. And if you have concerns about that, let me ameliorate some of your concerns. First, notice that Jesus isn't saying anything explicit here about why we serve the least of these. He's not saying anything explicit about our motivations. He's simply saying that we did it, that we cared for the least of these. He's not saying why we did it. He's just saying that we did it. Second, he does say something implicit about our motivations. You know, what's the big surprise in this parable? The big surprise here is that the people didn't realize that it was Jesus they were serving. Jesus says, I was hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, and in prison, and you showed mercy to me. And these people are shocked. They say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or any of these things? And Jesus says, When you did it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. The big surprise here is that these people didn't realize that they were serving Jesus. Now, listen, maybe, maybe they were thinking to themselves, okay, if I'm really loving and merciful to other people, then maybe God will love me and take me into his kingdom when I die. In other words, really calculating self-serving motivations, maybe, But the strong implication here is that these acts were done out of love and mercy. That's why Jesus says they didn't realize that they were doing it for him, even though they really were. When they did it for the least of these, they were doing it for Jesus. The strong implication is that these acts were done out of love and mercy. And notice um, how small these acts are. I mean, anybody can give somebody a drink, even a child. And notice also that um, these things Jesus is talking about here, nobody's ever going to notice you doing them. 
He's, he's saying, in this scenario, you are not solving world hunger or racism or climate change. Not that those things aren't important. Christians should pursue those things. But in this scenario, you're not Gandhi. You're not Malala. You're not Greta Thunberg. The things Jesus is talking about here, you're never going to win a Nobel Peace Prize for doing them. And that's the point. You're not doing them for recognition. You're not doing them to win your spot in heaven. Jesus says, that, or the people say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or any of these things? And Jesus is saying, you didn't realize it, but when you saw the least of these, you saw me. The point is they saw them. They saw the least of these. And friends, there is maybe no characteristic that is more Christ-like than seeing other people, seeing them, really seeing them. For instance, if you read through the Gospels with an eye for this, you will notice over and over and over again how many times it says that Jesus saw people. In Matthew chapter 9, it says he saw the crowds and had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In Luke 21, it says he saw a poor widow putting two pennies in the offering. In John chapter 11, it says that he saw Mary weeping for her dead brother. Jesus is constantly seeing people, even people that everybody else in that society would have called evil. So for instance, back in Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus meets Matthew, the tax collector, everybody else would have looked at Matthew and they would, have, they would, they would see a tax collector. They would have seen an oppressor. They would have seen a financial predator. But when Jesus meets him, it says, he saw a man called Matthew. He just saw a man. Is Jesus aware of all that other stuff? Of course he is, but what he sees is an image bearer, a human being made in the image of God. Friends, listen, this parable is the very last thing that Jesus says at the very end of his last public teaching, at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, He's, this is the end of his public teaching. Do you think that he's emphasizing something important here? Of course he is. In fact, Jesus is emphasizing here at the end of his public teaching the same thing that he emphasized at the very beginning of his public teaching. If you go back in the Gospel of Matthew to the Sermon on the Mount, it's the very beginning of Jesus' public teaching. He begins the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes in which he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy he emphasizes the same thing at the end as he does at the very beginning of his public teaching ministry. Jesus wants us to live lives that are marked by the kingdom of God. Lives that reflect the kingdom of God. Lives that are characterized by love, mercy, and care for others that we would actually do that. That's what Jesus is emphasizing here. That we would live lives like that. Lives that are marked by the kingdom of God. And if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, you might remember that the kingdom of God is all about this story that one day God is going to rescue us from evil and renew the world. Rescue and renewal. Rescue and renewal. Jesus wants us to live lives that are marked by his kingdom. Is your life marked by the story of rescue and renewal? Do you see people, and I mean really see them and care for them? The first thing Jesus shows here is a surprising mercy. But the second thing he shows us is a surprising judgment. And this really is the hard one for us in our culture because we're modern people. And when you think about final judgment, you know, 
we have pictures, right? Think about the words that we think about when we think about final judgment. We would say things like, well, final judgment, that's primitive, that's archaic, that's regressive. And us, as modern people, what are we? We are civilized and enlightened and progressive. We have pictures, so it's really difficult for us to enter into this concept of judgment, of the the judgment of God. So even if we're maybe spiritually open, maybe if we're willing to entertain the possibility of God's existence, it's got to be a God of love, but not a God of judgment. The idea of a God who judges, a God of wrath, to us in our modern culture, that's abhorrent. But what if we were to get a different picture? In other words, what if we were to ask this question? Do you ever cry out for justice? That's a stupid question in our culture today. When I was a kid, I grew up in a time when the reigning moral narrative said, who's to say what's right and wrong? Everybody has to decide that for themselves. You know, we, today, we say that about some things, but boy, we sure don't talk like that anymore. Um, even if you're in your 20s, you are old enough to remember that over the last 10 years, we have seen a major cultural revolution in our society. We live in a society that is hyper-focused on justice. Do you ever cry out for justice? Of course you do. In fact, do you ever hear other people calling down curses on people who fail to do justice? Maybe do you ever call down curses on people who fail to do justice? Of course we do. We are hyper-focused on justice. So here's the question. Why would we expect God to be less concerned about justice than we are? A God who doesn't care? A God who doesn't do anything about the injustice of this world? That God is not worthy of our worship. The, The judgment of God is simply a way of talking about the reality that one day God is going to bring perfect justice to this world. So here's the question. Why is it that we modern people are so offended by the judgment of God? There's a theologian named Miroslav Volf. He's Croatian, which means that he is a firsthand witness to the genocide and ethnic cleansing that took place in Croatia back in the 90s. Now, many of you may be too young to remember this, but millions of people were tortured, abused, raped, killed, dumped in mass graves, And theologian Miroslav Volf, um, in one of his books called Exclusion and Embrace, he asks this question. He says, what would keep people like that from picking up the sword and perpetuating a never-ending cycle of violence and revenge? Well, here's his answer. He says, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Can we stop and just read that sentence again? Because that's that's jarring to us. The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Why? He says it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis or idea that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In fact, he says, in a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die, and as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Now, what's he saying? That's a mouthful. But he's saying that often the people who object most to this idea of a God who judges are people who've lived the most privileged life. In other words, in suburbia, how often does your family get tortured, raped, killed, and dumped in a mass grave? Not very often. He's saying if, your fa- if that had happened to your family, 
the only thing, and he's talking about as somebody who knows, he's experienced this as a Croatian, the only thing that would keep you from picking up the sword, calling down curses, and perpetuating a series of never-ending violence and revenge is if you believe that there is a God of justice who one day will set things right so you don't have to. Friends, our cry for justice is meaningless unless there's a God of justice. In this parable, Jesus is simply affirming our cry for justice and saying one day that cry will be answered. But he's also challenging each single one of us with a question, and the question is, will you be ready for that day? And I understand this is challenging, especially if you're exploring faith or maybe you're... um, used to go to church, but not so much anymore. Or maybe you are skeptical of all things that have to do with religion in general. It's it's very easy. One of the big reasons that people are so, um, have a hard time taking Christianity seriously is because of the hypocrisy and moral failure of people who claim to follow Jesus. And it's just important to say, you're not crazy. If that's you, you're not wrong. But who is Jesus talking to in this passage? He's talking to his followers, mostly. He's talking to the church. And what is he saying that they're going to be judged on? Not what they believed about him, not their theological correctness, not even some righteous deeds they may have done, but their failure to care for the least of these, their failure to feed, clothe, shelter, and visit the least of these. Jesus is saying that you could pray and fast, you could go to church every week and tithe your money, you could listen to Christian radio, you could even be a leader in the church. And if you fail to care for the least of these, eternal judgment, eternal punishment. He's talking to his followers. So if you're skeptical about Christianity or if you're exploring faith, do you see the picture Jesus is showing you here? He's saying you will never hold the church to a higher standard than Jesus does. But if you are a follower of Jesus, are we able and willing to listen to this challenge from Jesus? Because it is challenging. In fact, are we able to listen to the voices in our world today that are calling us back to Jesus' vision for the church here? For instance, Howard Thurman was one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. He was a mentor to Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. King used to carry Howard Thurman's books around with him in his briefcase. Howard Thurman, in in his most important book, Jesus and the Disinherited, he begins that book by asking the question, what does the life and teachings of Jesus have to say to those who stand with their back against the wall? What do the life and teachings have to say to the disinherited, the oppressed, to the least of these? The tragedy of the modern church, Howard Thurman says, is this. He says, too often the price exacted by society for security and respectability is that the Christian movement in its formal expression, he's talking about the church, must be on the side of the strong against the weak. He's saying too often the church today takes the side of the strong against the weak. Man, that is a serious indictment against the church. Are we willing to listen to this challenge? Or to give a much more recent example, Sung Chan Ra is a Korean evangelical theologian. In his book, The Next Evangelicalism, he talks about um, our modern liberal Western narrative of individualism, and he talks about the impact that that has had on Christianity, that here in the West, conservative evangelical Christians tend to be more focused on our individual relationship with God than we are on our communal responsibility 
to the least of these. So here's what he says about this. When evangelicals deny the Scripture's call to be concerned for social justice and social concerns, we are influenced by the cultural norm of individualism rather than scriptural norms. Are we able in listening to hear these challenges, these voices calling us back to what Jesus calls us to here in Matthew 25? Friends, Jesus is showing us a surprising judgment here. So if you're exploring faith, He's affirming your cry for justice. But if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus is saying that your belief, your theological correctness, even your faith is worthless if we are not caring for the least of these, if we're not seeing them and doing to them as Jesus would have us. Now, all of that leads to the last and most surprising thing that Jesus shows us here. We've seen a surprising mercy. We've seen a surprising judgment. But lastly, Jesus shows us a surprising convergence of those two things. Because I don't know about you, but it's really hard to hold together both judgment and mercy. And yet here's Jesus giving us a picture of himself that says not only do both of those things go together, but they both find their ultimate expression and fulfillment in me. What does that mean? And where do we see that in this passage? Well, remember, Jesus says that when we see the least of these, we're really seeing him. Now, he's not saying he literally is that person. Jesus is actually picking up one of the major themes of the whole Bible and amplifying it. And, and that is that God is so identified with the poor, the oppressed, and the vulnerable that whatever you do to them, it's as if you're doing it to God. So, for instance, in the book of Exodus, it tells the story of how the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. At the end of chapter 2, it says the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And God heard their groaning. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Notice God saw them the same way that Jesus sees people. But even more than that, it says God knew. Now, People ask the question about this all the time because it's kind of ambiguous. God knew what? What did God know? It doesn't make sense to us until we realize that the Hebrew word to know is, is a word that means more than just intellectual knowledge. It's a relational word. What this is saying is that God was so identified with the people of Israel that their suffering became his suffering. God knew their suffering. You see this theme throughout the Bible. So for instance, in Proverbs 19, it says, whoever is kind to the poor lends to who? <laughs> to the Lord. Again, here's this idea that, that God is so identified with the poor that whatever you do to them, it's as if you're doing it to God himself. Friends, when Jesus says, when you see the least of these, you're seeing me, do you see now the picture that Jesus is giving us? Jesus is saying that I am the God of the universe. I am the creator of all. And I am so identified with the least of these that when you see them, you're seeing me. And whatever you do or don't do to them, you do or don't do to me. Friends, how do we become people who love justice and do mercy? How do we do that? That question has always been important, especially now. We've all witnessed how much our society has been torn apart over the last several years. And with the Supreme Court verdict um, on Friday, 
that's it, especially going to be even more true. I told Jenny, my wife, on Friday, man, I don't even want to go on social media right now. It's like that horror story I was talking about earlier. It's like, I know I shouldn't open that scary door, but I'm a fool and I can't help myself. (laughs) How do we really see others? And I mean see them. Not a picture, not a caricature, not the other, but really see people, human beings created in the image of God, manifestations of Jesus in this world, and people that, that we are called and commanded by Jesus to show mercy to without sacrificing the demands of justice. How do we do that? It's especially challenging because we live in a politically idolatrous society that is addicted to power and control and that is constantly giving you pictures and frames that say, here are the boundaries of who gets to be included in the most vulnerable of society. And you're not allowed to see anybody outside of these boundaries But friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ obliterates the boundaries by giving us a new picture. How? Friends, you know what the most surprising thing in this passage is? We saw um, earlier that the people in this um, passage are really surprised. They're shocked because Jesus says, I was hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, and in prison, and you showed mercy on me. And they say, Lord, when did we see you? hungry or thirsty or any of these things. They're shocked. They're surprised by it. And yet, you know what the, um, the, really, the, the greatest surprise here of all is? It comes right after this. We didn't read it because I wanted to surprise you. But right after this, here's what it says. When Jesus had finished all these things, the end of his public teaching, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. To be crucified. Lord, when did we see you thirsty? On the cross, Jesus cried out, I thirst. When did we see you naked? On the cross, Jesus was stripped and exposed, not just to the wrath of humanity, but but to the judgment of God himself. Lord, when did we see you a stranger? On the cross, Jesus was cut off and alienated, not just from his friends and family, not just from the rulers and powers of the world, but he was cut off and alienated from God the Father himself. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Dear ones, on the cross, Jesus, the the cross is the ultimate place where Jesus is so identified with you that your sickness, your spiritual malady became his. Where your um, desperate need for rescue and renewal became his. Where your imprisonment and bondage to evil, sin, suffering, and death became his. I mean, friends, you put all this together. Here's the big message this week. The only way we can see others and say, there's Jesus, is by seeing Jesus on the cross and saying, there's me. The only way we can really see others and say, there's Jesus, is by seeing Jesus on the cross and saying, there's me. Do you see him there for you? The the cross is the ultimate place where Jesus was so identified with you. He got the judgment that you deserve so that you could get the mercy he deserves. Jesus is the one who said, he heard the words, depart ye cursed into everlasting punishment, so that we could hear the words, come, you blessed of the Father. 
Friends, Jesus wants us to live lives that are marked by the kingdom of God, lives that are marked by love and mercy and care for others. But it begins with seeing him, knowing him, loving him. You know, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says um, words that are eerily similar to what he says here in this parable. You know, in this parable, what, what do the goats hear? Depart, you cursed. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to his followers, he's talking to his disciples, and he says, there are going to be a lot of people on the last day of final judgment that are going to come to me and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do mighty works and cast out demons in your name? And what does Jesus say to them? I never knew you. Depart from me. Now, notice the order of those things. I didn't know you. You didn't know me. I didn't know you. Depart from me. What was the people here, what is their biggest problem? It's that they put doing things for Jesus ahead of simply being with Jesus. Doing things for Jesus ahead of seeing Jesus, knowing Jesus, loving Jesus. The only way that we will ever be able to really identify with the desperate need of others is if we see Jesus on the cross identifying with our deep and desperate need. Do you see others? Do you really see them? Will you care for them? Do you see the boundaries dissolving? Do you see a new picture coming into focus? Jesus says, when you see them, you see me. And here's the thing. In the parable, they're surprised, but he's telling us ahead of time so that we know ahead of time. Jesus is saying, when you see that unhoused person on the corner, there I am. He's saying, when you see your elderly neighbor, maybe they're grumbling at you, there I am. He's saying, when you see that bigot or that social justice warrior, there I am. He's saying, when you see that terrified teenage girl at the pregnancy center, there I am. And when you see that ultrasound with the heartbeat and the fingernails, there I am. Do you see them? Do you see all of them? Do you see the boundaries dissolving? Friends, the only way that we can see others and say, there's Jesus, is if we see Jesus on the cross and we say, there's me. The, the cross is the ultimate place where we see the judgment and mercy coming of God coming together in the most surprising way so that it can make us a sign of that judgment and mercy, that justice and mercy to the world around us, make us a surprise to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your surprises. Um, Lord, there are wonderful surprises in here. There are also challenging surprises in here, but we thank you most of all for the surprise of the cross that forever will transform the boundaries of this world and forever will abolish those boundaries and invite us into a new picture that has mercy and justice for all. Lord, help us wherever we're at this morning, whether we're exploring faith, whether we're deconstructing, whether we're skeptical, whether we're angry, whether we're hurt, whether we, whatever has happened to us and wherever we're at this morning, Lord Jesus, help us to see the surprise of your cross, the picture of what you've done for us and enter into that picture. It's a picture of reality because it's a picture of the ultimate place where justice and mercy came together and set us free. Father, help us to be a sign of that picture to the world around us for we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.